Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Hugh Howey, author of the World Science Fiction series, which is now a new Apple TV series, Silo. Uh, Hugh, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the new Apple series. Um, For listeners who might be new to the books and to the series, perhaps you could just give us the basic setup. Sure. It's a story about the last 10,000 humans on Earth living underground, and they've been there so long, they have no idea how they got there. And so it's a mystery of trying to peel back the layers of conspiracy and, and ill intent that, that put them in this situation. And in, in many ways, ambiguity seems to me to be at the heart of the book and of the, the series as well. And fairly early on in the book, one of the characters says, you know, who says that we're the good guys? So that ambiguity really is there right from the outset. Yeah, hopefully you'll change your mind as you watch, you know, or read that, uh, like, who's got the, the best intentions here and and i think the answer is messy which is how it is in the real world you know it's kind of the point of the the whole show it's a play on plato's allegory of the cave the idea that we don't see the true forms of things we only see shadows on a wall and i really want to lean into that and get people to question um how strongly they hold very loosely formed opinions yeah, and actually that that whole notion of truth is something that runs through the book. Again, one of the characters says, knowing the truth is always good, right? Um, so again, another one of those those ambiguities. Yeah, I mean, I think if you follow this, um, this thread along, you'll find that there are some truths that can get people hurt or even killed. And I think absolute positions are very difficult to defend. And so if you have an absolute position of the truth is always good, and an absolute position of like, you know, all freedoms should prevail. Like those things are really difficult to reconcile with each other. And the, the point should be learning compromise and learning um, nuance. When I wrote this 12 years ago, it was kind of satirical in some ways, but um, some of that satire has become social commentary because of things that have happened and things we've gone through in the last decade. Yeah, and and one of the the important themes that runs through the book uh, definitely echoes that that you know the importance of history of of narrative in in terms of the past because these characters, as you alluded to in your first answer, they don't really know how they've arrived or where they've arrived. So their their sense of their own history is very much up for grabs. Yeah, and I was very deliberate with the, the amount of time that's elapsed, that the the whole idea that's been 140 years, it's roughly, uh, you know, I grew up in the American South where uh, we have this, you know, this incredible leftover history of our civil war that we still live with, and it still informs our social fabric, but not many people understand what happened and what life was like back then, and 140 years feels like a really long time, but two lifespans can span that almost one, you know, it's a, it's, it's not that long in the human history scale, but in our human understanding scale, it seems unfathomable. And that's, that difference is baffling to me that we can lose our history so quickly. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that, that example there of the, the civil war, that is something which in terms of the United States has been written and rewritten and argued about and different schools of thought. One of the things that's interesting about the silo 
is that the history has been wiped and the implication early on is that it's been wiped for either malicious reasons or, as another character says, for perhaps for good reasons to stop uh, the society repeating its own, its own history. Yeah, one of the themes in the book, which we don't have time to get into in the show, is that before this big revolution, there were revolutions every 20 years or so. And um, it kind of follows human history, like some are bigger than others, but it's a generational thing. It takes about 20 years for another generation to come up and think, hey, this time, if we burn it all down, this time it'll work. And it never works because um, burning things down is very easy and and improving existing systems or building things from scratch is very difficult. And, um, you know, these are, these are the kinds of things that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So when I'm writing fiction, it's to tell an entertaining story with these great characters and big cliffhangers and lots of drama. But what's informing the story are just questions of, of the human condition like that. And in, in some ways, and, and I'm, I don't mean this in a political sense, I mean it in a more philosophical sense that uh, what you've just said there is is almost a, a conservative way of thinking. In other words, that perhaps progress comes through evolution of one generation passing on to the next, as opposed to the revolution that you just talked about. That, in a in a curious kind of way, particularly coming, we're recording uh, just after the July the fourth holiday. That's an interesting context in the sense of the United States, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, we could do a four-hour podcast just on these kinds of topics because I love them. I think it's very difficult for people on the conservative side to allow any kind of change, even generationally, which is bizarre to me. Like uh, the the idea that we want our kids and grandkids to live with the same hangups that we had is so strange. But some people are really like that. They don't want to see social progress. And, you know, like generationally, we've made a a decision that same-sex marriage is okay. And previous generations had a hard time with interracial marriage. And the people who are really far on the right and and my country don't want any of these changes. Like future generations have to live according to my standards or it upsets me personally, which is such a weird way to live. On the left, the idea is that the changes have to happen right now and it doesn't matter how many people get hurt. Like we have to make these changes immediately to end all the suffering that's happening right now, which is also unrealistic. We just can't expect people to pivot that quickly. And so for me, the reasonable stance is somewhere in between where we have to have change and we have to be patient with people because change is difficult. And embracing both of those is is really hard for a lot of people. And that is the heart of this novel. Um, the people in IT who are representing the conservatives who want no change and no truth and are very totalitarian in how they want to operate things. It's a very Hobbesian, Leviathan kind of uh, way of operating. They're in contrast to the mechanics who are like Rousseau's noble savages. And the mechanics think if you just let everyone be themselves, everything would just work out perfectly, which is you know, both of these positions are indefensible. And so it's wild that almost every human adopts one of these two positions at their core whether they understand that they've adopted that or not. And both are wrong. Compromise in the middle must be made. And then the challenge is finding out like where that compromise is. What I really enjoyed about writing Wool is that I asked that question and then took the characters through the journey. And you don't even have to know who 
Rousseau and Hobbes are to enjoy this because it, it's a discussion that's older than either one of those philosophers. But it goes really, it's, it, I think this is why the book has been so impactful for over a dozen years now is that it's asking a really important question in a way that you don't even realize the question's being asked. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me because it is a, a very intense study of political order, social order, power, and these kind of things that the silo itself literally represents that class order with the, the oligarchs living at the top and the mechanics living at the bottom and uh, kind of different, uh, different people living at, at different other kind of levels. I mean, uh, when you're when you're writing, particularly something which, as a as a reader, I can say definitely zips along. It's very very entertaining, but it has these kind of more thoughtful elements as well. How do you get the balance between the kind of philosophical questions that you're talking about there? You've talked about Plato, you've mentioned Hobbes, you've mentioned Rousseau, but at the same time, you have a responsibility to your reader to be entertaining, to drive the narrative along, to uh, to tell the story. How, how do you make that balance? I think the key for me is to know all of these philosophical underpinnings and never mention them. Like, do not bore the reader with this stuff. Um, because it's, it's easier to explain these things through a character's motivations and their own journey. And so I think uh, the temptation, and I feel it as a writer, and I see it as a reader, other writers fall for. The temptation is to put all of your best ideas on the page as clearly as possible, these info dumps and these kind of very showy ways of saying like, this is the, the kind of thing I want you to think about. You just have to resist that temptation and say, no, this is at its heart. It's about a mechanic who likes machines more than people who's thrust into a position where she has to solve problems of a social kind and not a mechanical kind. And how does she handle that transition? And if you tell that story, but you're your heart and soul want to have other conversations, then it's impossible not to let the metaphor and allegory leak in. And I think to me, the measure of success of this book is, is how many complaints I get from people that they missed their bus stop or their subway stop, or they were groggy the next day because they stayed up till 2 a.m. reading. Um, I, I've heard from so many people that they've, they've lost their love of reading until they picked this book up. Just in the last week, I've gotten a dozen emails and seen a hundred public comments about that because people who love the show went to the books for more answers and rediscovered their love of reading. So my number one goal as a writer is to entertain. But I, I will say that like the joy of layering in all this meaning so that it's there for people like us who geek out for that stuff. It's there for all of those kinds of readers. It's there for repeat readers. That to me is the fun part of constructing a novel. And this is why when I write a book, I do a dozen revisions before I'm happy with it. You know, I, it takes that long for me to get all those pieces uh, in place so that I'm happy with that. I can satisfy both kinds of audiences. And why why is it do you think that that science fiction has has proved to be so rich for exploring these kind of issues that you're very much in a tradition uh, with writers going back to the likes of Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and Brave New World, uh, Kingsley Amis, The Alteration, uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, J. G. Ballard. So many writers have written about these kind of philosophical issues coming at it through this lens. Why is that, do you think, that it, it is such a rich tradition? 
I think the freedom it allows speculative fiction, you know, and I love, I love speculative fiction rather than science fiction because, uh, people can take it in a, a human psychology way instead of like an, a gizmo or a piece of technology, like the technology in, in silo is actually a little retro, like a little bit behind our technology in a lot of ways. So it's not about, you know, some whiz bang sorcery. Um, but the, the speculative side just allows you to tweak some part of humanity, um, in order to highlight some other feature or to highlight that thing that you're tweaking, it's just ultimate freedom. Like we're not constrained by the rules of this world. Instead, we're constrained by the overall human condition and our imagination. And, um, it lets, you know, Fahrenheit 451 is this incredible, um, book about the burning of books. And that's something that's happened historically. And you could write about several times in human history that books were burned and place the story there. But if you make it weirder, it gives you the freedom to talk about, you know, 1984, Orwell has this incredible scene where he has people convince you that your enemy is now your ally and your ally is your enemy overnight. And when you read that, you're like, well, that can never happen. It's too absurd. But by waking your mind up to that, you, then you notice when it does happen, that, that politics change all the time. I, I grew up in a, in a time when Republicans hated Russia. That was the enemy. And now Russia is the ally and it happened, you know, with, within a two or three year period in my lifetime. So it's just bizarre that, that we can make things up as satire and what we're talking about are things that are happening around us. And I think the speculative side allows us to do that in a way that that's so powerful that these stories become timeless. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Orwell there. I mean, who who are the writers that you particularly feel have influenced you in your own work? Yeah, I mean, Orwell's number one. And not just, um, I, I think Animal Farm is like one of the great works of satire ever written. And it's so, it's small enough that you can just pick it up on a on an afternoon when you want to revisit it and and find something else amazing in there. Um, that book really helped me um, as I was wrestling with my political upbringing and my religious upbringing and, and doubting things. And he gave people a license to doubt. Um, Gulliver's Travels is one of those books that doesn't get enough credit for being science fiction, but it might be one of the first works of science fiction ever written. There's just a treasure trove to mine out of Gulliver's Travels. Uh, and then there were a lot of political writers and people writing nonfiction that influenced me, learning about evolutionary psychology, learning how humans think. The Nurture Assumption was a, a book that really blew my mind and, and made me see myself in a different way, which affects the characters that I, that I create. So yeah, I, was, I wouldn't say that I have like one or two influences. It's just hundreds. It's from a, a, a really prolific um, reading history as a, as a youngster. Yeah, and it is fascinating that you mention uh, Animal Farm there, which uh, I would agree is, is is one of the great books of all time. But it struggled to find a publisher, certainly in the United States, when it when it first came out, because it was deemed to be um, too offensive towards the Soviet Union, which had been an ally during the Second World War quite recently. And so there, there was a huge controversy uh, around it. Um, you too, when you brought out the first of the Wool series. Um, turned your back on traditional publishing. You brought this out uh, yourself through Amazon. 
uh, and so on. What what was your thinking then? And what is your thinking about the state of publishing today, not just in the United States, but more broadly? So my background, I my mom was a bookstore manager and I worked in a bookstore to get through college. I was working in a bookstore while I was trying to make my living as a writer. So I've seen publishing from the bookstore side and the publisher side, because you work with them closely when you're in a bookstore. And when I wrote my first book, my thought was I, the chances of it getting published were small, but also if I got it published, I knew it would sit on a bookstore shelf for a few months, one copy spine out, no one would ever find it. And it would get returned to the publisher for a refund. Um, people don't know, but most published books sell, you know, in the dozens or, or maybe a hundred copies. It's a tiny, tiny amount. And so I, I really early on disabused myself of any fantasy of making a living um, through that traditional publishing path. And so I was going to publish the, my first novel on my blog for free, but I started sending the word document around and friends and family were like, you should publish this. It's better than the last book I paid money for. So I actually published my first book with a small publisher out of Illinois. And what I learned working with them is that everything that they did, I could do myself. Um, and a lot of the costs of publishing are one-time costs. But I was giving up lifetime rights and lifetime uh, royalties. Like I, the the amount that I make is a fraction of what the retailer and the publisher make. And so I decided with my second book I was going to do it myself. I bought the rights back to my first book, and from then forward, I just never even considered submitting to publishers again. I just enjoyed telling stories and doing it at my own pace and having the creative freedom. Uh, the control over pricing, you know, a lot of different reasons that I'd prefer to that. And when Wool took off and, and hit the New York Times bestseller list, and I did a film deal with Ridley Scott, all these crazy things were happening. Publishers were offering me way too little money. I was making way more than they could afford to pay me. So we were turning down deals and, and the deals got into the seven figures and we were still saying no. And, and what we wanted to do was find contracts that made sense where they were for a limited amount of time, not my whole lifetime plus 50 years. And they would do just the print version and I would keep the ebook and audiobook and the world rights. And publishers took a really long time to come around and have those conversations. But eventually we started doing deals that made sense. And, and I get all my rights back every five to seven years for all my books. And then I can go out again. I can self-publish. I can do whatever I want. And the value of these books changes over time. You know, the, the series is worth a lot more money now that the silo series is not only out, but it's a hit, you know, and we've got season two filming and, and the biggest show Apple is, has the biggest drama they've ever had. So when we go back with the rights, like, I, I don't know if anyone will be able to offer us what it's worth and I'll go back to self-publishing. And so I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I talked earlier about having an extreme view and how that can get you in trouble. I don't have an extreme view either way. Um, I'm working with over 40 publishers around the world right now, but the last thing that I put out, I self-publish and the next thing I'm putting out, I'm self-publishing and I weigh each, you know, project individually, but people who are hardcore, like there's only one way to go are probably missing an opportunity and, and definitely losing out on a fun conversation. Yeah. And it, it's, it's striking, isn't it? That, I mean, you talk about that, which seems to be taking advantage of new technology and new uh, flexibility in publishing. And yet, you know, much of the direction in publishing is going the other way that more and more small independent publishers are being folded into big publishers. 
And there, there seems to be a lot less choice uh, in many ways, particularly for, for new, younger writers. A lot less choice. So I, um, I'm with HarperCollins now in the U.S., but only because of an acquisition. Um, I did all my uh, deals with HMH. And uh, so now, you know, my editors on these books have changed several times. There's just a lot of turnover and turmoil in the publishing world. Um, but publishing is very healthy. The number of independent bookstores is going up in the U.S. I, I spent a lot of time in London and there's a bookstore on every street. It's just um, people still love books and they love to read. It doesn't mean that audiobooks and ebooks haven't exploded and become a huge driver of revenue for publishers and authors. But, um, you know, despite all the distractions and other ways we can spend our time, the, the explosion of amazing TV and and social media and all the other things we can do, people are still finding time to read. And I love that because it's been my passion since I was a little kid, everything book related. And, and I just want to see it continue to flourish, you know? So let's talk about the Apple TV series. That's a, a, an adaptation of the book. What's that process like going from uh, being the original novelist to being involved with the TV series? And what's the difference between your own vision uh, in the book and then seeing how that, that vision emerges when it becomes part of a collaborative, creative process? Um, so the I'll do the second part of your question first, because that was really eye-opening. I fell in love with collaborating with other creatives. I've always written kind of in a vacuum by myself. The exception was when I serialized some books and you'd have interaction with readers, but the, all the creative side was me. And when I got into a writer's room, um, which Apple involved me in as an executive producer and as someone trying to help um, shape the show, I just loved being in a room with other smart creative, funny, charismatic people and talking about the same world. It just felt like being a kid again, where you're, you're doing make-believe with friends and you're just, I can't believe that, like, that we get paid for this, that we just get to make stuff up all day. But there, but there have been so many examples of writers who have literally torn their hair out when they've, they've seen their book turned into a terrible film or a, a TV series or for whatever reason, this kind of very individual thing that literally started in your in your own head uh, is now being interpreted particularly as there's a gap of more than a decade since you wrote it for the earliest book yeah most most writers do not seem to enjoy this process i've got a good friend going through it now and he's just not having any fun with it but um nothing's going to change the book and i you know i've been very open i've been allowing fan fiction uh published fan fiction for profit where all the money goes to the the fan fiction author which I don't think anyone's ever done in, in history before where someone's like, yeah, play in my world and make money off of it. And so I've, I've never had this like very clingy view of, of the story. Like I get to control what's in my books and no one can change that. And if someone, we've done graphic novel editions, um, you know, audiobook narrators bring their own creativity into this. And I've just welcomed all that from the beginning. But the TV show took that to the next level because not only did I get to collaborate in the writer's room, when I went on set, I saw hundreds of talented, creative geniuses putting their own imprint on this show, whether it's the fabrics they're picking out or the, the paint choices or the architecture of the sets, the costuming, the makeup, the hairstyling, like each one of these details has a genius behind it who's like laying in bed at night 
thinking about this world. This is their job for years was to like realize this, this shared vision and seeing that many smart people pulling in the same direction. The result is so much better than anything that I ever imagined. And that's when I'm walking around set, people are like, is this how you pictured it? You know, everyone working on the crew had that same question to me. Is this, is this what you imagined? I'm like, no, this is a hundred times better than anything I imagined because I don't have your talent and you're bringing that in with all these other people. So that's something I really loved about this process is that you get so many um, clever people pulling all of that into one thing that no one person can ever pull off. And that, that was a thrill. And, and we often hear that that in television, in contrast to films, the writer is king in TV, that, that the role of the writer is respected in a, in a fundamentally different way to the way that it would be on a, a film set. Do you think that that's part of the reason why you found this to be such an engaging, collaborative, successful experience for you? I think that's part of it. And the, the reason they say that about TV, the person in charge of a TV show is the showrunner, which is not the director. And the showrunner is uh, a writing first role. And the second part of the role is like a managerial, like someone who's running a multi-million, sometimes multi-billion dollar company, basically. But they, they come from a writing background. And the reason is you might direct, you know, three hours out of a 10 hour season, but the showrunner has to hold five potential seasons in their head. And the, so the writers have like way more material going on that they're juggling than any one director could manage. When you direct a film, a director can hold all two hours of what they're shooting in their head. And the writer is just someone you go to for tweaks. And since this is based on a book where we have all the source material and these are writers in charge, I think the mutual admiration that we have makes us a team, really consolidates us as a team. And you've seen this in other adaptations, even film adaptations. Uh, the Godfather uh, is a great example of a director and an original author, like becoming best friends over their, their shared love of the material. And I feel that, I, I don't think, I don't know if Graham feels that towards me, but I feel that towards Graham Yost, our showrunner. I just love him and, and cherish his enthusiasm that he brought to the source material and think that uh, I just sent him an email recently after the finale because the show just came over so well, just congratulating him and his team. I think they did an amazing job with this. And I mean, just to, to get your inside take, obviously there's a writer's strike uh, going on at the moment. Uh, what what are the issues at stake there and how do they affect the show? As, as you say, there's a second series, which is which has just been commissioned for which congratulations. Um, so So what's going on with the writer's strike? And with you as an executive producer and as a writer, uh, how do you how do you balance the different priorities involved there? Yeah, I'm torn in so many different directions because I'm I'm an executive producer on this show, which means I can talk about it, I can have discussions with other producers, I can promote the show without violating the spirit of the WGA. Uh, but I'm a writer on other projects that I can't you know talk about or work on, so that's it's been a challenge there. Um, it's also been unfortunate for the writers who worked on the show to not be able to promote the show. I think the WGA might be a little too strict in that regard. I think it hurts some of the writers in, in some ways more than the shows they worked on. And I think writers should be able to promote what they worked on so they can help their careers going forward. Um, we, we really dodged 
a bullet with the, the timing. We got all the scripts not only turned in, but we were able to get notes on them from the directors and the actors and incorporate those changes. Uh, so we're well into shooting. All the scripts are, are turned in. I think we're over halfway done with the, the filming. So um, if we can get the strike resolved, which I hope we can, then we'll be able to get back to working on season three and trying to get uh, the green light on that. But um, it's the, the, the strike is devastating for so many other people and I hope it ends quickly and hope we can reach a compromise, which a lot of our, our conversation today has been about compromise. And so maybe everyone needs to pick up the book and, and, you know, remember that relaxing strongly held views is like the first step to improving ourselves. Yeah. And, and uh, finally, Hugh, in uh, a lot of the reviews of the, the series refer to it as being dystopian. Um, and yet, as I think this conversation uh, illustrates and your, your comments about philosophy and so on as society and compromise, and certainly which comes across uh, strongly in the book, that there are elements of hope in your writing. You yourself have, have said that there are allusions to contemporary society uh, in what you've written. Uh, I wonder, I mean, how hopeful are you about the future of the United States and where the United States is going? I am hopeful, but I share the impatience of the, you know, the more liberal side where we want change to happen quicker. Um, but I, part of me, and you, you mentioned this, the, the kind of the conservative view of change happens one funeral at a time. It's very dark to, to view that, but it, it kind of is true that change happens because we grow old and we take our old views like to the graves with us and wisdom percolates from the bottom up. I think that was a, a major insight that I had just um, since I've written Wool, I think that if each generation is better than the one before, that means wisdom doesn't trickle down. It percolates from, from, from the bottom up. And we need to listen to um, not just the youth, but we need to listen to children like, I think that there's a lot of wisdom um, that we slowly lose over time that's different than the wisdom that we gain over time. And if we let knowledge flow in both directions, we would all benefit. And so I'm optimistic, but I'm also impatient. So the first book in the series is Wall. It's written by my guest, Hugh Howey, and it's the basis for the new TV series, Silo. Uh, every episode is now available on Apple TV. Uh, but for now, Hugh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 